Today is the last week, our last week, our last Sunday, in our series on the home. And uh, I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Um, I felt led by the Lord to, to teach, preach through this series um, on the home, knowing that the last year has... Uh, thrown everyone some curveballs. Uh, and, and some of you have, you've been through worse than 2020, maybe in your life. And so, but, uh, but for others, um, maybe it was a big bump in, in your road. And so, uh, really just felt the Lord leading to, to preach and teach on the home. Because really the home is where it all happens, right? Um, that's where uh, we feel the most stress sometimes. Um, it's where Really, the foundational work of our lives happens, uh, regardless of your age, regardless of where you are um, in your life, whether you have uh, small children living in your home, or teenagers, or if you're empty nesters, or if you're grandparents, and anywhere in between or beyond, uh, the home is where it happens. And um, so, it has been uh, interesting to preach a topical series. I usually don't do this. It's very much out of my comfort zone. And, uh, and it's also a blessing for me to hear how uncomfortable you are with it. Um, people who are like, okay, usually Pastor Luke, when we start the message, he says, open your Bible to this passage. And everything comes out of that, out of that passage, out of that text. And uh, in a topical series, we kind of bounce around from place to place. And um, so it's a little different. But today will be our last day in this topical series on the home. Um, when I come back, and I think Mike is going to be kind of dovetailing into what I'll be preaching on when we return in a couple of weeks, we're going to focus on kind of going from the home to going to into the church and what the body of Christ looks like and what does it mean to be part of the body of Christ. And it's interesting, the Word of God describes... Uh, the body of Christ, the church, in many different ways. Lots of different diff uh, metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses for it. A building, a house, a human body with many members. So we're going to learn about that in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to be looking at the Christian home again. And what does it mean for the Christian home to be a hopeful place? A hopeful place. Hope is very important. And without Christ, we don't have any hope in this world. But if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and you belong to Christ, the Bible, God's Word, gives you much hope. That is, things to expect in the future, things to look forward to, things to be hopeful about. And so today we're going to discover different ways of how, how it is that a Christian can be hopeful. Why is it that you, if you're a Christian, have hope for your home? Hope is forward-looking. It's what we expect to happen. Uh, 
the next day and the next day and the day after that. And it's very simple, it's very easy to become cynical, isn't it? In our world. But the Bible gives us hope. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago we looked at Acts 1.8. Actually, it was last week we looked at Acts 1.8 where Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, he says, you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses throughout the earth. But then he follows up that statement telling them, he says, actually, let's just go there. So I want you to see this. I wasn't going to dwell on Acts 1.8, but I want you to see this statement about the hope of the Lord's resurrection. Acts chapter 1, I just shared with you verse 8, now verse 9. After Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to reach the nations, that they're going to be witnesses of him, Tell the good news. Verse 9, after he had said these things, the Bible says, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's coming again. Amen? He's coming again. And we celebrate his resurrection on Resurrection Day, on Easter. But it is a reality for us to think about and to be encouraged on and to feed on every waking moment in this life. Jesus is coming again. And the implications of his return are numerous, far-reaching more impactful than on a daily basis we even recognize. He is coming again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says to the Christians living in Thessalonica, he says to the church, he says, we don't, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. If you're a Christian, you belong to Christ, you don't grieve like people who don't have a relationship with Christ. And though people all around us, our loved ones, our friends, die. He says, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be unaware about those who have fallen asleep. I don't want you to be stressful as those people in our world who have no hope. He says, because Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again... He's going to call those who have, who have died before us first. And then they're going to come with him and then th we will be called up with them. So he says there's a difference between Christians and non-Christians. There's a difference between those who, who know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior and those who don't. And those who do have hope. And that extends to your home. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts Chapter 2. After Peter preaches this very powerful sermon, people ask him, what, uh, what must we do to be saved? He preaches this, this sermon that 
that many people would not feel comfortable with today. Um, there's a crowd that some will call the seeker-sensitive crowd, who they, you know, they, they visit churches and they meddle in different religions because, you know, they want something that's palatable, something that feels good, something that sounds good. This is not a feel-good sermon. This is not a make you feel good and pat yourself on the back sermon. Peter says to his listeners, he says, you guys all crucified Jesus. <laughs> his blood is on your hands. The Bible says they cry out to him, what must we do to be saved? And Peter answers them in verse 39, in verse 38, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for all your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Keeping that in mind, now turn over to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, our focus is going to be verses 25 through 34. But I want to give you a little bit of context before we get to the events in chapter 16. In chapter 15, the Bible talks about how Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, and they're meeting with the apostles and the elders of the church there. And they're talking to them about the ministry to the Gentiles. And the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem had among them, among the church there, some believers who were formerly of the sect called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were staunch legalists. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, he was a Pharisee. He actually calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Pharisee squared. Okay, that's the extent of my math knowledge. I know what exponents are. That's it. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. There was no one who knew the law better than me. So these are, this is a group of Christians in Jerusalem who have come to know Christ, but they have this baggage in their rear view of legalism. And they think that the Gentiles who are becoming Christians, that they should be, at least the males, should be circumcised. Because it's not enough to just believe in Christ, but that they need to be circumcised. They need to take on Jewish traditions coming from the Old Testament in order to really belong to the Messiah. Because Jesus was a Hebrew. And the elders in Jerusalem meet with Paul and Barnabas and they say, no. You just deliver to those Gentiles who you're winning to Christ this message, here are some things they need to do. They need to live in fear of God. They need to fear the Lord. They need to abstain from meat sacrifice. They need to abstain from idolatry. They need to abstain from meat that has been strangled and things that still have blood in them and things like that. But he says, but not circumcision. And so the early church was trying to figure out, okay, when we go and we share the gospel with these people who have no, no Jewish context at all, what do we tell them? How do they accept the Messiah? What do they have to do 
Do they have accept all of our customs? And so Paul is going out and he's ministering to the Gentiles and he's sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And now we come to Acts chapter 16 verse 25. Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been imprisoned because they're sharing their faith. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all, we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what the crowd asked Peter after Peter preached the gospel and called them to repent. Listen to what Paul answers. How Paul answers. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized he and all his household and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household now we are are a a credo baptist believing church that means that when we baptize people we baptize people based on their public profession of faith because we understand the New Testament practice to be that. That those who were baptized in the early church in the New Testament were baptized because they had publicly announced to their friends, their family, any, the, the watching world and the church that they believed in Jesus Christ and were going to follow him with the rest of their life. It was a dedication it was surrendering to him as Lord and Master of their life. That's what we believe and that's what we practice. But there are some throughout history and still today who are pedo-baptist or pedo-baptist. That is that they baptize people not based on a public profession of faith but will baptize infants. People before they're even able to give a public profession of faith. Or to even place their faith on their own accord in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And they will usually go to texts like this to support the practice of baptizing infants. They will go to the household baptisms from the New Testament and say, see here, there's a household baptism. But I want you to see in this story, this is not really the main point of the message, but I want you to see this. I want you to see what's going on here. Notice the amount of times that this phrase household, this term household, this idea is used and see what's going on here. It's not as though one person, the head of the household, believes and because of their belief in the Lord, they sanctify their entire household 
And so everyone in their household, regardless of whether they understand the gospel, whether they believe in the gospel, whether they public, publicly profess Christ, that somehow they are baptized and part of that covenant community. That's not what happens here in the text, is it? No, the Bible says that they all believed. The jailer in verse 34 says he believed with his household. His entire household believed. Isn't this awesome news when it comes to the hope that we have in the gospel? Listen, the Christian home is a hopeful place. Why? Because everyone is a whosoever. Everyone in this household. It didn't matter if they were Jew, Gentile. It didn't matter if they were young or old. It didn't matter if they were male or female. It didn't matter how far off they thought they were from the grace of God. You all have people in your family, and I have people in my family, who we feel are very far off from God, do we not? But we have hope. We have hope. Our family has hope. Your household has hope. There is no one too far off from God. You know why? Because through Christ and His blood, we have been brought near to God, the Bible says. I love it. This guy's about to take his own life. He's about to kill himself because he's so distraught. And what's going to happen to him? How's his family, maybe even his household, is going to be punished because he didn't do his job. He's asleep on the job and all the doors of the jail fly open and people are going to escape and he's thinking, this is the end. And Paul and Silas don't move. They say, look, everyone's in their cell. It's okay. You don't have to do this. You don't have to kill yourself. I wonder what the question that he's asking, when he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Is it different than those who are hearing the message from Peter in Acts chapter 2? What are they thinking compared to what he's thinking? Because they're saying the same thing. They're asking the same question. What must we do to be saved? He's thinking that his physical life is going to be taken away at any moment. And he asks the question, well, how am I going to live through this? Paul and Silas don't make him any promises as to the repercussions, as to what might happen if he's found out, if his superiors find out that this happened on his watch. They don't say, it's okay. You're he, they say, because they get to the point. The point is, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you have the promise of resurrection and eternal life. We cannot promise that your life is going to be rosy from this point forward. But we can guarantee you this. That you don't have to fear death if you belong to Christ. And it's not only true for you. It's true for everyone in your household. We feel that those in our household, maybe even at different times, when they're younger, when they're older, different times in your marriage with your spouse... When you think, times are a lot harder than they used to be. You wonder how they're doing with the Lord. Wonder how your kids, how your parents, how your uncles, aunts, people that you love, part of your household, are they too far gone? How far off are they? We have God's promise that there's no household beyond hope. None. And there's not a single soul in your household, in your home, Who's too far gone? Not a single one.
I, I just want us to spend a moment um, praying for them. Can we do that? I just want to invite you to bow your head just for a moment. Because I've got two more points to get to. All right? I just want you to bow your head for a moment. And think about the people in your home. People, think about the people that are in your family. Immediate, extended. And maybe the Holy Spirit's bringing some person to mind. Would you just lift them up to the Lord? And agree with his word. And agree with his promise. That they are not too far off. That God can do anything. And would you have the faith to say to him today, Lord, I trust you. I trust you that you can change their heart. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can grant them repentance. That their life can change. Father, we entrust each one of these souls lifted up to you and spoken to you. Lord, we entrust them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The second reason that we can be hopeful is that the Christian home comes with instructions. God doesn't leave us to our own devices. We have hope because he's given us direction. I don't know about you. There are things that I buy these days where I'm like, why did this come with directions? Why did this come with a manual? Anybody else like that? Like a microwave. Anybody open up a box with a microwave in it and there's a, a thick user's manual? It's like, I plug it in. Right? That, that's it. I mean, our microwaves now are, are made for me. I mean, like they're idiot proof. Right? There's a button that says potato. Right? How long should I cook a potato? Hit the potato button. How long should I, how long should I do popcorn? popcorn button right you can you can get those just throw the instructions in the trash i don't need that if my microwave break microwave breaks what are, what are we going to do with it i'm not going to open the back of it and try to fix a fuse or something it's going in the trash go get another one at walmart whatever i'm just not going to do that now there are things that i will work on you know things i have worked on Worked on a dishwasher. I've worked on a washing machine, on a dryer, things like that. You can save some money doing that, but a microwave, really? And I love buying a new computer today. Quick start guides. I love them. Quick start guides are for people like me who don't want to read an instruction booklet. Some of you are engineer types, and you keep all you keep all the electrical schematics. You'll break open an appliance and you'll not me. I like the quick start guides to the laptop when it comes in from Amazon or wherever you ordered it from. 
It comes in the mail. You open it up. There's a, there's a one-page piece of paper with three steps. Take laptop out of box. Plug into wall. Wait 24 hours. That's it. I like a quick start guide. The Bible's not really a quick start guide. It goes in detail. It goes into depth. But it is simple. It is simple. God tells us what things we should observe how we should think about one another in the home. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, children, to parents. The dynamics of these relationships. God doesn't leave us without any idea of how to do this. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Sons, don't hate the reproof of your fathers. Don't hate the discipline of your fathers. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord. As to the Lord. That is, obey your parents like you obey the Lord. Parents, provide for your children. Love your children. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He doesn't just give us commands. He actually gives us a mirror image of what this should look like. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. How? You guessed it. As unto the Lord. The Christian home is distinct. We are looked at how it's holy, it's different. And when we look at these passages where God tells us the relationship between parents and their children, it does make us stick out. When other teenagers are rebelling against their parents and it's a rite of passage, and this is what kids do, according to the world. And the Bible says, no, it's not what kids do in the Christian home. We're going to stick out. When God's set of instructions says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, give yourselves up for them. Give yourself up for your wife. She comes first. Love your wife, he says in Ephesians 5, as you love your own body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes it and nurtures it. Cherish and nurture your wife. When your friends, your co-workers, are not treating their wife that way, and it's very unpopular to love your wife sacrificially, you're going to stand out. Wives to your husbands to respect and honor and submit yourself to him because he has a distinct role in the relationship and in your home that was given to him by God. It's a stewardship. It's his responsibility. Support him. Don't fight him. That goes completely countercultural with what we see in the culture today. But God gives us instructions. He doesn't leave us alone. He tells us what he wants us to do. This goes all the way back 
to the Old Testament when we look at God's character and what he's called us to do. You'll see in Micah, or I'm sorry, yeah, Micah 6, 8. When Israel has God's law, he's told them, I've told you this is how you are to be different, distinct, and holy among the nations. I've already given this to you. And he says to them in Micah 6, 8, Micah says, He, that is the Lord, has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Paul says that we are to have, as Christians, the same mind as Christ has. And although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And though he was fully God, he was incarnate. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And he bore our sins upon himself. He humbled himself. There is not a single soul who's ever lived who has condescended and humiliated themselves and humbled themselves as much as Jesus Christ. Not a soul. And God has given us that instruction for our home. This is the way you are to behave with one another. Our homes come with instructions. So we're hopeful. But we have to use those instructions. We have to be in his word. And then finally, we discover the good news that all things will be made new. That's why we're hopeful. Because all things will be made new. Every yearning that you have Husband in your wife. Wife, every yearning that you have in a godly husband. Children, every yearning that you have for godly parents. Parents, every yearning that you have for godly children and grandchildren. All of those desires are met when you see Jesus face to face. The disappointments that you experience in your home. If you haven't, and maybe you will, those disappointments, that dissatisfaction that you might have, you try to maybe, sometimes you compare yourself to other families, other Christians, and you go, why can't, why can't our relationship, why can't my relationship with my, my dad be that way? Why can't my relationship with my mother be that way? Or my children be that way? And there's this sense of dissatisfaction. Maybe there's brokenness in those relationships and you wonder, will that void ever be filled? It will. It will. In Jesus Christ, all things will be made new. See, the things that God gives us in this life are not rendered superfluous when he comes again. But the Bible says he's restoring everything. He's redeeming everything. He's making everything New. Turn over to Second Peter chapter three. 
In 2 Peter 3, verse 13. He says to believers, to Christians, that we're looking forward to and we're hastening the coming of the Lord. He says, verse 13, but according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and what? New earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, turn over to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 2. Let's just start in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and, he sh- and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these things, these words are faithful and true. Broken relationships, death, grief, mourning, loss, all of it made new. Not forgotten. Not set aside. God doesn't think that your pain and your loss and your grief that you've experienced in your family is not important. He doesn't want you to get over it. He's going to satisfy your longing in Christ and in Christ alone. And though today the fullness of that is not felt, On that day, everything will be made new. He will satisfy your every longing. All disappointments, all brokenness will be healed. Amen? That's what it means for the Christian home to be different, to be hopeful, to be looking forward to these things. Pray for what you hope for, just as we did earlier. Not just for the people that God's put in your life, in your home, but pray for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That was the cry of the early church as they went out to witness Christ as Lord and King, the one and true Savior. They were martyred. They were led off to Wild animals in the Colosseum, they were led off to be burned, to hang on crosses. And their constant cry was, come, Lord Jesus, come. The early church was 
struck down but not forsaken. They were constantly looking for the Lord to come again. The Christian home should be hopeful. It should be anticipatory. We should be anticipating the coming of Christ. And that should shape the decisions that we make. The conversations that we have. What we do with our time, with our finances, with our energy. Looking forward to the coming of the Lord. So I hope this morning that you're hopeful. I hope that God's word this morning and our time together has given you perspective of how good God is to his people. He loves you. And he knows all about your family. He knows all about your home. And he's not forsaken you. No one is too far gone. And the heart cryings and stirrings that you have, he's not ignoring. He doesn't think they're unimportant. That he's going to meet all of those. And he does meet all of them through Jesus Christ, his son, who died in your place, in my place, and took his sin, your sin upon himself. Do you know him this morning? If you don't, the promise of God is clear in, in his word. Whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. All that is in Christ can be yours by faith in him, through your faith in him. Nothing in my hand I bring, the old hymn says. Simply to the cross I cling. I cherish the old rugged cross. I love it because that's where Jesus died for me and I have all the promises of God in him are true let's pray together Father thank you for your word this morning sometimes it seems too good to be true Did you tell us in your word that faith, the evidence of things unseen, we simply respond to your promises with faith, trust, placing our hope in you. Father, I pray for each person gathered here this morning. You know our every need. There are some who've spoken names to you already this morning. We entrust them to you. God, there, there's brokenness, there's emptiness, there's grief, there's pain that we experience. Father, you satisfy our longings. You heal our brokenness through your son, Jesus Christ. Let us live in such a way that everything in our life is an expectation of our Savior's return. 
that we humbly give everything to you, Lord, trusting you today. Knowing that you are able to do above and beyond all that we ask or even imagine. And then in moments when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, your spirit intercedes for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name.